Turn, if you would, to Acts chapter 8 this morning. Acts chapter 8, we'll begin in verse 25, read down through the end of the chapter. Acts 8 and verse 25, down through the end of the chapter. The they in verse 25 refers to Peter and John, who are apostles who've come to Samaria. Verse 25, so when they had spoken, excuse me, solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem and were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. So he got up and went, and there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship, and he was returning and sitting in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the spirit said to Philip, Go up and join this chariot. Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, Well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of Scripture which he was reading was this, He was led as a sheep to slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. The eunuch answered Philip and said, Please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or of someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. And they went along the road, excuse me, as they went along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch no longer saw him, but went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. And this is the Word of God. And thanks be to God for His Word as He's given it to us. As we came to Acts chapter 8 and began to see the ministry of Philip, we noticed the last time we were in Acts chapter 8 that the apostles, Peter and John, came from Jerusalem down to Samaria and in verse 15, it says, they came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. We took some time to consider that passage and what was going on. And just to make clear, I, I felt like we could have spent more time in that section. Certainly could consider the work of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts longer. And we will because we'll be seeing his work later on. 
But I think one of the questions that you have is why does it take the apostles to come to Samaria so that the Samaritans would receive the Spirit? Why did they have to come for that to happen? Why did the Spirit delay in coming upon the Samaritans until the arrival of the apostles? And one of the things that we noted was that this is, in the book of Acts, a transition time. Really, throughout the book of Acts, it's a transition time where God is doing things that during this transition gives a focus to certain truths. In the case of the book of Acts, it is that the Spirit of God is given to those who believe. And in the case of the Samaritans, if you remember, the Samaritans were worshiping at another temple. Uh, they're not fully believing all the prophets. They weren't connected with the church at Jerusalem until Philip comes and preaches the gospel to them. But when he comes and preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ, they believe Christ. They believe that he's the Messiah. They're baptized in Jesus' name. And without the knowledge of the apostles, they know that they have salvation, but we would understand from the broader picture of Scripture that that actually connects them to the church, to the apostles, and certainly to the Jews as well. So one of the things that is happening here, even by the apostles coming, is that there is a uniting of the Samaritans together in Christ, what helps them to understand that and also understand that this is the one true God that has sent his son Christ is that the apostles come from Jerusalem. Remember there's this controversy between the Samaritans and the Jews as to where to worship and really remember the Samaritan woman expressed that. You say that we're to worship, uh, that, that you're worship there but we say here and Jesus, of course, said, we know what we worship. And there was a clarification with that woman, and certainly a clarification as he came to her city. But here there's a clarification to all of Samaria that the gospel was preached at Jerusalem. The apostles truly represent the Son of God and, of course, the God of Jerusalem who had revealed himself through the prophets as well as through Moses in the Old Testament. So I'm just saying that this uniting of the Samaritans and the Jews under Christ also connected them with the God of Jerusalem. No longer the God that they supposed was the God of Gerizim, who in their mind, if they still believed that those prophets in the Old Testament were not God's prophets, they would have come to understand that the prophets in the Old Testament did speak from God. So he's uniting the Samaritans and the Jews together in Christ and under Christ and under the leadership of the apostles in the early church. He's giving them the same spirit. And why does he wait here? It is in part to wait for those connections to be made so that they would understand who God is fully to understand certainly historically the true God, the one true God. Now you might say by implication as Philip preached Christ 
uh, as he preached the message of Christ, those things would come across that Philip knew the truth and would have preached the truth. And what I would say is this is a transition time where things are becoming clearer. Even in a few chapters later when the Gentiles come to Christ, there's a misunderstanding of the Jews about what exactly is going on and Peter is having to explain. So this is a transition time. And the gospel is for not only the Jews, it's also for the Gentiles. And the promise of the Spirit is not only for the Jews, it's also for the Gentiles. And this, as we said, this kind of bridge people, the Samaritans who are kind of half Jew, half Gentile. Where do we know or how do we know that this promise of the Spirit is for everyone? Turn back to Acts chapter 2 for just a moment. Keep a finger here. What did Peter say on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2? Was the promise, after Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost, verse 37, it says, Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So who's he talking to? He's talking to these Jews who were there on the day of Pentecost. They were from all over the world, but they were Jews. They'd come to Jerusalem to worship. He's preaching the message to them, and he says the promise of the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit, is for you as you believe. But then he says in verse 39, for the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. So not only future generation for them, but also those who were Samaritans. And certainly by extension in our chapter today, Ethiopians. And if we were to continue on through the pages of Acts and into the New Testament, we would say the Romans, the Corinthians, the Galatians, the Ephesians, the Philippians, the Colossians, all of those Ians out there, right? All those peoples. The gospel's for everyone. The Spirit is for everyone. But it is God's Spirit. This is no magic that's going on. This is God's Spirit, and certainly the apostles would have clarified. And even in verse 25, if you look back at chapter 8 and verse 25, there's more teaching, more instruction that takes place following Philip's preaching of the gospel, the reception of the Holy Spirit, this interlude with Simon, the sorcerer, who seems to be, as I understand and would say, an imposter, someone who is not truly a believer, only there for the power, posing in uh, as a Christian, but only really, as we see at the end there, that he's interested in the, 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 the power that these apostles have. But in verse 25, after Peter rebukes and Simon answers with a no repentance, sort of pray for me, in verse 25, it says, So when they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem and were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. And I want you to just notice, in part, they're preaching to this same group of people that Philip had preached to. 
the wording there is that they solemnly testified to them. That word means to solemnly, soberly assert something. Often concerning, someone has said, grave or important matters. That word is used in Luke chapter 16 and verse 28, where the rich man in Hades asks Abraham to send Lazarus back to solemnly testify about this place where he is and where he doesn't want his brothers to come. He doesn't want his brothers to come to hell where he is. And so he gives solemn or wants solemn testimony to be given to his brothers. And what does Mo, uh, Abraham say? He says they have Moses and the prophets. And of course, there's solemn testimony with Moses and the prophets. But why do, why do the Samaritans need a warning here? Well, they certainly would need a warning against turning back to uh, what they had believed before. What they've come to is Christ. They've come to the right source of salvation. And so to turn back to anything that they had believed before, there'd be a warning to persevere and stay the course and hold fast to Christ and cling to Christ. I believe they'd also need a warning about the influence now of Simon. Though we don't have a text here that tells us what happened to Simon, church history suggests that he was an enemy to the apostles later on as he continues. So they would need a warning about his influence. They would also need a warning about what was coming if they truly accepted the gospel. And we oftentimes focus on the positives when it comes to preaching the gospel and the good news and receiving forgiveness of sins, receiving everlasting life and all of those blessings that are a part of our salvation. But the reality is that when you come to Christ in this world, that doesn't mean everything's going to be okay. Persecution could come. Suffering could come. And of course, in the early church, it did. The apostles have already experienced it. And so like later on in Acts, there are certainly warnings that tribulation may come because you have believed in Christ. You will be hated by all men for my name's sake, Jesus said. And the Samaritans may be rejoicing in Christ. They also need to understand what it costs when you do come to Christ and as you follow Christ. And Jesus didn't hide that. As he said in Luke 9, 23, among other places, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And so there's a message of a cross. And of course, some of his disciples actually met one day with a Roman cross. They met with suffering. They met with tribulation, persecution, distress. So the apostles here are solemnly testifying, and it says, and spoken the word of the Lord. And that's a phrase that if you study it in the book of Acts is synonymous with the gospel. So there would be a confirmation by their preaching that the gospel that Philip had preached was their gospel too. There's a same message that they also had. But then it doesn't stop there. They're preaching in verse 25 in the first part of the verse to those same Samaritans that came to Christ that now have the Spirit. But what do the apostles do as they head back to Jerusalem? They don't go straight back. In fact, what does it say? Verse 25, middle of the verse, they started back to Jerusalem. 
what began as a trip to confirm the Samaritans and fulfill the other purposes God had for them, this turned into a mission trip as they went through, notice what it says, many villages of the Samaritans. Many villages. So if you're going to make a distinction between a city and a village during this time, a city would probably have walls and would be protected in that way from an enemy. Maybe it was a time of peace, but a city tended to have walls. But villages were these unwalled places where people lived, still had homes there. Little outposts where people had set up a house. Maybe we're taking care of animals or farming or something like that, but it's all these, it says, many villages of the Samaritans. Well, this verse is describing not only ministry of confirmation to those Samaritans, but now an expansion of the witness beyond that walled city of Samaria, now to all the surrounding villages and people who might hear because the gospel may come out, but the apostles didn't wait for that. The apostles, no doubt, were rejoicing that Samaria, the city, many had come to Christ, but now there are people along their way who also need to hear the message of Christ. And so this divine testimony, it says they spoke the word of the Lord, that gospel message is now going to all of these little places. The good news is for everyone. It's for every big city, every small city, every place in the world. God loves those little villages. He loves the people in those villages, those outposts where very few people reside. I used to work for a missionary medical doctor who spent much of his missionary career in Africa. And he delighted in the thought of reaching people in places that were less traveled and less populated. It's wonderful to see the heart of a man, even into his late 80s and 90s, who was still trying to reach people with the gospel of Christ. And he had a philosophy about those little villages, those places where there were very few people that nobody really thinks about them. But God does, and the gospel needs to go there. It needs to go to the uttermost part of the earth. And he said, you might think going to a big city that you would, that big city would tend to think about the cities around, and that's possible. But he also said that when you go to those little villages and people come to Christ, then, then they think, what about all those people in the cities? And either way, God loves the big cities, the little villages. Philip went to Samaria, but in God's purpose, even in bringing Peter and John there, there was a mission trip for them to participate in as they went back through those little villages and were able to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. So God cares about those little cities. He cares about few people, but he also cares about just one person. Just one person. The gospel has expanded to Samaria and now to the villages between Samaria and Jerusalem. But in verse 26, we have a turn 
where Philip now has the opportunity to witness to one individual. And we read the passage. We see, first of all, in verse 26, some divine direction. And by that, I mean the Lord sends an angel to tell Philip to go somewhere significantly away from where he is in Samaria and to a place miles and miles away that is an un uninhabited area. It's a desert road. And it's the road down to Gaza, from Jerusalem to Gaza. It would be, of course, in the proximity of what we're hearing in the news. But Luke goes on to say here that the uh, it's a deserted road, or even in the margin, this city is deserted. So the area in which he was, it just wasn't like the bustling city of Samaria, where there are many, many people. And I don't know about you, but... If you're given direction, first of all, from an angel, you, you would take that seriously, as Philip does. This is a messenger from God, as Scripture says about the angels, that they are ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. And this is, this is Philip, who is a believer, and he's being sent to preach the gospel to someone. So the angel has a purpose in connecting people for the sake of the gospel. But to go from a big city and all the busyness to a desert road, you might ask the question, why? I mean, isn't there more to do? Aren't there bigger places to be, more people? And Philip's going to have opportunities certainly later on. But now the Lord has him going to a place that he does not expect, and it doesn't look all that significant. I can imagine, although we don't have anything about Philip's thoughts here, that he might have wondered why he's there, but we can see God has a purpose for bringing him here. God has a purpose when he directs his servants to places where they may not see the full purpose, but God has one. And it's no question that this is from God. It's an angel who directs him there. Verse 27, after the direction is given, it says, so he got up and went. Philip had gone because of persecution up to Samaria, but now God is directing him very specifically, and again, through one of his messengers. I want to just point out that word in verse 26, an angel of the Lord. This is not the same angel of the Lord, I don't believe, as in the Old Testament, where it talks about the angel of the Lord. Uh, the Greek language and the Hebrew language don't work exactly the same way with this particular phrase. And there are times where this same phrase, an angel of the Lord in the New Testament, is very obviously a finite angel. It could be Gabriel. It could be another angel who's, for instance, sitting on top of the, of the stone that was rolled away from the tomb. We know that it's not the same person as the Old Testament angel of the Lord, the one who's identified as the pre-incarnate Christ. There's some who take it that way, but I don't believe that that is necessary. In fact, as Jesus comes in person and his name is known, while he does have titles that are given, oftentimes as the Lord is referred to directly, he's referred to either by his name or some title where we know very specifically this is Christ. So this is an angel. It's still divine direction because God has sent him. 
And as he sends Philip by his direction, Philip discovers something that, of course, God intended him to discover. Verse 27, second phrase there, it says, And there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure, and he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. So what Philip found is, of course, what God already knew. But so that we get an understanding, Luke gives us a number of descriptions in a very short period of time to help us understand what's going on here. Who is this? Well, he's an Ethiopian. In the Old Testament, it was the nation of Cush, or another name for it would be Nubia. This is modern-day Sudan. It's along the Nile River. Uh, when it says there was an Ethiopian eunuch, that refers to his uh, position within the court. It does say a court official of Candace. His relationship to the queen meant that he was in a position that was very trusted and had to be guaranteed to be trusted so that they actually, for him and others who would serve with the queen or a princess, they removed the person's reproductive organs so that he could serve as a guard and in proximity without any possibility of corruption or relation, inappropriate relationship with the queen. And so this is who this man is. He's an Ethiopian eunuch. Notice it says a court official of Candace. And Candace is one of those terms which we don't we don't meet with it uh, in scripture other than here i believe and it's actually a title sort of like pharaoh sort of like caesar where there are different caesars and there are different pharaohs well there would have been different candaces and that's been shown through the history of this area, that there's a period of time where there were multiple Candaces. But this is the queen of Ethiopia. One person describes it this way, both the setting of where this man was from as well as the circumstance. The kingdom of Ethiopia lay on the Nile south of the first cataract. Its two chief cities were Moro and Napata. The king of Ethiopia was venerated as the child of the sun and regarded as too sacred a personage to discharge the secular functions of royalty. These were performed on his behalf by the queen mother who bore the dynastic title, Candace. So this is a dynasty of queens that reigned in this area. We're not sure exactly which this one is, but if you were to read it in the Greek language, it could read like this, a court official of the Candace sort of like you would say, the Pharaoh. And again, this is a dynasty. So he's positioned in connection with this queen, which if what that author is saying is true, the queen was actually the one who was functioning. The king was the one who was just worshipped and too sacred to be involved in all those affairs. And now this is the queen's treasurer. What does it say? It says he was in charge of all her treasure. So as rich as she was, as wealthy as she was, this is the guy who has the keys, so to speak, or the bank account, so to speak, the care of all that treasure. 
you might think sort of a nameless person who you wouldn't give a lot of attention to unless he did something that was out of order. But you know, the Lord paid attention to this man. Somehow he had access to be able to come a significant distance from, it could have been the city of Moreau. If you're coming from the city of Moreau down where there are actually graves of the Candaces and it's an archaeological site, there's archaeological proof that this was the dynasty that reigned during this time. If he came all the way down from there, it would be a probably a month-long journey if he's riding in a carriage or a chariot just to come up to Jerusalem. And he's already been up to Jerusalem. Notice it says that at the end of the verse, he had come to Jerusalem to worship. So there's a backstory here that we don't necessarily know, but just think about what is said here. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. Worship at one of the feasts, perhaps? Worship at the temple? And either before or during his time, he obtains a copy of Isaiah the prophet. If you look at Isaiah 20, Isaiah himself spent some time down in Nubia or Cush. But we're not sure where he obtained this copy, and this would be a copy that would be like a scroll that could be rolled out. He doesn't have... In this day, a book like this, a codex, where you can just open up the pages, it isn't, you know, that kind of technology, you might say, yet, but he's a worshiper. And he's a worshiper without full knowledge. It says that he came to Jerusalem to worship. That's the right God. That's where God had revealed himself, even through his son, you could say, when Jesus came to Jerusalem and died in Jerusalem. Of course, God had already chosen Jerusalem. There was a purpose for him revealing himself there. And this man comes to Jerusalem, but leaves Jerusalem without the knowledge of Jesus, without the full understanding of who Jesus is. And I, just by way of application, this is an amazing story. Again, we don't know all the backstory. We just have to take what the text says, and it points us in directions that God was at work in this man's life in such a way that he took a significant journey to Jerusalem, and now he has a copy of the Scriptures. God is working in people and in ways that you would not expect. This is not usual. This is sort of like those Greeks that came to the feast and talked to Jesus' disciples and said, Sir, we would see Jesus. But they were in proximity to Jesus. This is after Jesus had died, rose again, ascended into heaven, and now the apostles are doing what God directed them to do. But this man came to Jerusalem. He'd left Jerusalem. He'd left without full understanding. And what if he had just gone back? Well, the Lord could have brought, certainly, the gospel to him another way, but rather than do that, he sent Philip. Philip, who loved to preach the gospel. Philip, who, when he hears this man, and notice, notice what happens as the story continues. The Spirit directly gives Philip instruction, go up and join to this chariot. This is where I want you to be, Philip. It says, Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. 
Now we're going to look at some of the dialogue, but just what's going on here is remarkable in that God is reaching through one of his servants out to someone who is reading his word and is on a desert road. And you would say from all human expectations, this guy isn't going to get the gospel, but God knows about this man and sends the gospel to him. And this is a wonderful conversation. You might ask the question in verse 29, why is it the Spirit that's giving direction now? All I can say is, I don't know. But he is giving divine direction to Philip so that Philip knows and understands where he is to go, who he is to talk to. And I don't know if he's, you know, if you if you get the image here, he runs up to the chariot. Uh, in a little bit, he's going to be invited to come up and sit. So I, I don't know about you, if, if the running up may have stopped the chariot or if Philip is running alongside asking him if you know what you're reading, you understand you're trying to kind of enter into what's taking place here. There's, there's a knowledge that this man is reading. Maybe they're not moving very fast. And Philip asks the question as he hears Isaiah being read. Uh, most likely because of the common language at the time, he would have been reading the Greek translation. In fact, what is quoted here in verse 32 is the Greek translation. So if he's reading Greek out loud, and Philip, who has a Greek name, again, Greek being the common language of the time, hearing these words, these words are not unfamiliar. But Philip wants to know, do you understand? Do you understand what you're hearing as you read out loud? This man's reading the scriptures out loud in his vehicle, whatever this vehicle is. It says it's a chariot. You might note in the margin it's a carriage. Uh, a little bit later, he orders it to stop, verse 38. So he is not the driver. And when I first read this passage, when I, when I think of this passage, at least as I've thought about it in the past, I'm thinking, you know, the typical chariot's got two people to be able to ride in. You've got two wheels in the side and a horse in front. This seems to be a bigger situation where there's a driver. And if he has a scroll, he has to have that rolled out. He's not the one driving. He's rolled it out and he's reading out loud as the driver's driving and Philip comes up. And that's where we catch their dialogue. And what's their dialogue? First of all, verse 30, do you understand what you're reading? And then humbly, verse 31, the Ethiopian says, well, how could I unless someone guides me? Now, he's an important official, but he's humble enough to say, I don't understand. He could have dismissed it, but he's humble enough to say, I don't understand and I need a guide. Can I make just a brief application and say there are people in your life and mine who need a guide to understand the Scriptures? They might not say it. It might become apparent through something that they say that they need a guide, but there are people in your life and mine who need a guide. And if they need a guide, maybe that's a family member, maybe it's a friend, maybe it's a coworker. Are you willing to be that guide? And would you be a good guide if you were called upon to guide them? Now, not everybody's reading Isaiah. 
Sometimes it's a different passage of Scripture with which we may be more familiar. Philip, at this time, the New Testament gospels and epistles were not yet written and being read, but this Old Testament passage was, and Philip was apparently familiar with it, and he knew how to interpret it. In other words, he was a good guide. Not every guide is created equal, and God can use us with the limited knowledge that we have to be a guide. Sometimes He challenges us when we have an opportunity to be a guide, and we don't do as well as we would have liked. We, We say, I need to get back into the Scriptures and understand so I can be a better guide. And that's part of what is happening when we meet in the Lord's days. We're learning how to be better guides not only for ourselves, but also as we explain the Scriptures to others. So we need to pay attention. We need to invest ourselves in studying the Scriptures so we can guide others in the way of truth. This man's statement is, how could I? He doesn't have the ability to unless someone helps him. He doesn't understand. He can't pull up the internet and find some commentary and wouldn't even know necessarily what to resource anywhere, find as a resource. But apparently Philip looks like, based on the question, someone who could help him. Verse 31 continues, and he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. So I would guess that, yes, the carriage stops. Philip climbs up, and out rolled in front of them is Isaiah, 53. What a setup. Right? What a setup. There are times when the door just flings open with an opportunity for the gospel. And it's such a setup. In other words, sometimes we're fearing if we talk to someone that we're going to be rejected or there's some kind of fear that we have about that interaction. But sometimes what the Lord does is he just wide open. I mean, open comes the door and here it is. And regardless of what the reaction might be, we need to pray for boldness that the Lord would help us to speak the truth that the door is swung wide open or not. But here the the door is swung wide open. And he has a very specific question. Luke tells us, verse 32, what the passage is. It says the passage of Scripture which he was reading was this. Quotes from Isaiah 53, he was led as a sheep to slaughter, and as a lamb before his shearer is silent, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation, for his life is removed from the earth? I still remember a time when, and I think I've shared this with you before, but I had a conversation with someone where I was trying to give this man the gospel. His name was Steve. And in the process of talking with him, um, he mentioned the fact that he lived with, and I had not met him until this particular day, but he said, I I live with a Baptist family, and they're always talking to me about Jesus. He said, what's the big deal about Jesus? I mean, talk, talk about a setup, just wide open. I mean, what's the big deal about Jesus? And so... 
as a Christian, at least I could start there. I know some things about Jesus. I know some things about the gospel. I can share some things about Jesus. But the Lord had been preparing him through this family that had been witnessing to him. And now, because of the circumstances, I had a time with him, which was a captive audience. I was taking him two hours to the Atlanta airport from Greenville, South Carolina. I had the opportunity to spend that time telling him about the significance of Jesus. The Lord just set it up. I had no idea it was coming. When I got the occasion, it was such an encouragement. But here is the setup. The scriptures are actually in their lap, so to speak, and here's the passage. And here's his question, verse 34. The eunuch answered Philip and said, please tell me, you see the politeness of this man, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or of someone else? Now we can look at his questions here. I think one of the things that I would say based upon the question, the first question that he asks is that he's already recognizing that Isaiah is a prophet. In other words, by his question, he's assuming what he would have known if he'd gone to Jerusalem to worship, that there were prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord, a spokesman from God. So he knows at least Isaiah is a prophet, and he says, in order to rightly interpret what Isaiah is saying, of whom does the prophet say this? of himself or of someone else. Now, we know the answer to the question, and I actually went back through Isaiah 53 trying to discern what would lead someone to ask that question. And there are... Let's go back there for a moment. If you were to look through Isaiah 53, there's a, there's a first-person... involvement, at least in the pronouns in the text, there's also a focus on an individual, obviously Christ, the suffering servant. Verse, 50, uh, verse 1 of chapter 53, who has believed our message, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of the parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All, we, all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And now, very specifically, the passage that is quoted there in Acts, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? 
And the question is, is Isaiah talking about himself? Now, you might have read this passage in all of your life. You've been taught that it's talking about Jesus. But this man doesn't know that. He's a worshiper, but he doesn't have full understanding. And so now, who is this person really about? And I think, certainly, for time in Israel's history, they might have asked, what's the name of this person? Who's this person suffering in Isaiah 53? You know, there's still confusion about who that person is in the world. But Philip got it right. Philip got it right. Turn back to Acts chapter 8. What is Philip's interpretation in answer to his question? Please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or of someone else? Well, Philip would have said it's someone else, and it's actually Jesus of Nazareth. This is about Jesus. Jesus is the one who was led as a sheep to slaughter. Jesus is the one who was silent before those who were accusing him. And we know that as a matter of record in the Gospels, that Jesus was silent to the point that Pilate was amazed, Herod was amazed, the people who were oppressing him were amazed. At his silence. Jesus suffered many verbal insults, false accusations, slaps across the face, punches, beating on the head. And yet, how did he respond? He did not respond in kind. And when he was adjured to speak or commanded to speak by the high priest, he did, but most of the time he was silent just like a sheep before it's shears. Have you ever seen that? We went up to the farm park a number of years ago and saw a sheep being sheared. And I think if I was being sheared, I don't think I'd, I'd be quiet like that, but they are quiet. It's a vivid image that Jesus was going through that suffering, not even opening his mouth, but taking that suffering. And the injustice of it, Look at verse 33. It says, in humiliation, his judgment was taken away. A couple of things here. First of all, Jesus was humiliated. He was humbled by this suffering. In spite of his glory as the Son of God, in spite of his position in heaven with the Father, receiving the worship of the angels, he came to the earth and humbled himself and went through that humiliation of suffering on the way to suffering on a Roman cross. And why? No doubt Philip dealt with why. Why was Jesus silent as opposed to protesting? Why was he being humiliated? Why the injustice? What is taking place? Who's going to consider that? There's different translations in verse 33 of that phrase, who will relate his generation. If you look back at the Old Testament passage and compare, it seems that what Isaiah is talking about is that no one really considered fully 
the significance of what was taking place as it was taking place. Even his disciples didn't understand when his life was cut off. They understood later. But verse 33, among other things, just at a base level, indicates that not only was there injustice, but there's a death that took place. Jesus died. And why did he die? Well, he didn't die for himself. He didn't die for his own sins. He died on behalf of others. He died, as we read Isaiah 53, as a substitute in the place of others. Our iniquities were laid on him. He absorbed the wrath of God as our sins were laid on him, and he paid the price for our sins. Philip, as he opens his mouth and beginning from that scripture, he preached Jesus to him, is preaching the message of the gospel. Certainly, Philip would have preached and continued with a call to believe, a call to repent, a call to trust in Christ. That's what he'd done in Samaria. And certainly, he would have had to by this point, unless this man had had knowledge in some other way, Philip also would have said that all those who believe are to be baptized in Jesus' name. And that's why suddenly it's kind of the, the context here, the, the narrative is interrupted because you see some water and suddenly he's asking to be baptized. Look at what it says, verse 36, as they went along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? What keeps me from outwardly showing that I'm a believer in Jesus Christ? That's his question. At least that's the sense of the question, because baptism is not what saves. Baptism is that outward symbol of a spiritual reality. The reality of someone who comes to Christ is that they've joined in union with Christ. They've been united with Christ in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection, and in his resurrection life. The act of baptism is making that union public. I have been united to Christ. I believe in Christ. Now, if you look at verse 37, look at, look at the brackets there around that verse. If we didn't have that, we would go from the question in verse 36 to the statement in verse 37. He ordered the chariot to stop. They both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. So why the verse in brackets? And we looked at one of these on Wednesday with the Lord's Prayer. There's some verses in brackets. Whenever you see verses in brackets, there's usually an explanation. In uh, your Bible, if it has footnotes, uh, there may be uh, an explanation as to why this verse is in brackets. In my Bible, it says, in connection with this verse, early manuscripts do not contain this verse. So the earliest manuscripts of the book of Acts that were copied after Luke wrote Acts don't have this verse, which in my view means that it's not original. It's not an original part of what Luke wrote, which we would say then it's not part of technically God's word, right? Because we would say that what God wrote, what Luke wrote, is the Scriptures. And somebody who added something in 
uh, is, is for whatever purpose they have, is adding something that was not there. Well, if you look at what's there, you would say, but that's good. Like, I like that. Because all I see is this man saying, what prevents me from being baptized? And Philip, according to this person's version of the story, in order to make sure, he asks the question, or he puts it to him. If you believe with all your heart, you may. And we would say, yeah, that the, the, what's important when someone is baptized is that they truly do believe. That, that that reality is already there. The baptism is only going to get them wet. It's just the outward profession of what has already taken place. And so this zealous scribe, you might say, is trying to make explicit what I think we could infer. Because then he puts in the mouth of this Ethiopian, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now, if you look at what Philip had preached before, as he proclaims Christ, as he proclaims the gospel, of course, Philip is preaching Christ, Jesus, as the Son of God. So what the attempt here is to put in kind of a confession so that when you read the passage, you realize what has taken place, that this, this conversation took place. It's sort of like someone's imagination that, yeah, that took place. Well, I would say something like that must have taken place. But the way in which this man testified to his faith that he had in his heart was what prevents me from being baptized. You understand what I'm saying? In other words, he has already come to the place of belief in his heart, and he says, I got to obey the Lord, and what's next? What's keeping me? One writer said, no doubt Philip was well satisfied, but there are some minds which cannot be content to leave such things to be inferred. So some words were added in which Philip tests the man's faith, and he responds with a formal confession, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. But what seems to be the case is that Luke left to be inferred that, yes, this man had come to faith in Christ. That's why he wants to be baptized. Now, all that being said, how serious is he? What prevents me from being baptized? He is initiating this. Look at verse 38. It says, he ordered the chariot to stop. Now, we don't even hear Philip saying nothing. But the man is convinced that, hey, I mean, there's water right here. What keeps me? And do we find Philip agreeing? Well, it says they both went down into the water. So Philip did agree that this man had come to faith in Christ. And that this outward sign, as we see earlier on in the chapter of baptism, should take place. That he should be baptized. And so they went down into the water. You can take from that implication of immersion. I believe that's the proper view of how a person is baptized through immersion. But Philip goes down as well as the eunuch. Luke makes that specific. And then it says, and he baptized him. And now this Ethiopian has publicly professed, and I say publicly because Philip witnessed it, and he has a driver who's going to take him back. Maybe he had an entourage. We don't know. I've seen scenes depicting this, and it's like this Ethiopian has a bunch of people, but the text doesn't say that, but we know he has a driver because he ordered the chariot to stop. 
Unless he has super smart horses that can both drive and stop like that, right? When they came up out of the water, verse 39 says, and here's another surprise. We've seen the Spirit's direction, but now we see the Spirit acting in a way for the sake of the gospel where Philip has done his work, his work is now done, and the Spirit takes Philip away entirely from this situation and moves him elsewhere. What I believe you see here is God's sovereign activity in the spread of the gospel, not only for the Samaritans, but now to this Ethiopian who is on his way back home, and now the Lord has something else for Philip to do. And I like the way it's worded there in verse 40, but Philip found himself at Azotus. Okay, so he just finds himself there or is found there, but the idea is the Spirit moved him supernaturally to another location so that he could go on with preaching the gospel. But what happens to the Ethiopian? This Gentile who has come to Christ, this important official, church history says he became a missionary. All we know in verse 39 is that he no longer saw Philip, but he went on his way rejoicing, rejoicing in the knowledge of Christ, rejoicing in salvation. Now he's publicly professed Christ, and on he goes down to Ethiopia. The gospel's spreading. It's spreading beyond Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. Now this is Gaza, but that road that leads from Jerusalem through Gaza goes down into Egypt. And now, at least by expectation, because of what this man does and who he is, the gospel is going down into Africa, spreading according to God's sovereign plan. We might have thought, well, he should have sent the apostles there. That's not what God did. And he doesn't have to follow our ideas to spread the gospel. He is spreading the gospel through this man, connecting him with Philip. Look at verse 40. So we've seen the witness in this chapter of the apostles there to the villages of the Samaritans. We're seeing the witness in the middle section of this chapter to this Ethiopian. And by extension, I think the gospel is spreading even down into Ethiopia. But verse 40 is Philip's continued ministry at, the Old Testament has the word Ashdod for this word, Azotus. So this is a coastal city. This would have been a Philistine city. And then it says, and as he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. Now, if you look at a map, and you can, I'm sure, see maps of this time, uh, maybe even in the back of your Bible, but you're talking about Philip going south and then over to the coast. And then as he goes over to the coast, he then makes his way up through, notice what it says, he kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. That's a whole bunch of gospel activity in a short amount of time, at least explained by Luke. But Philip just kept on preaching the gospel to all these cities. I mean, this is, this is describing, to a certain extent, you might say weeks or months of Philip's life as he preaches the gospel, and other people come to Christ along the coastline there, the Mediterranean. And then he stops in Caesarea. So what is God doing here? Well, the gospel message is spreading, it's spreading to the 
farthest outreaches beyond Judea, Samaria, all the way to the coast, whoever was living there, all the way up to Caesarea. This is exactly what Jesus said would happen. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And here's just one person that God is using to spread the gospel through many places. Samaria first, and then by extension, Ethiopia, and now all these cities on the coast. And I just, I, I, as I came away looking at this chapter, I just thought, you know, this is one of those characters in Scripture that you might not pay as much attention to because there seem to be brighter lights. Philip was a bright light. Philip is evangelizing everywhere. What a gracious gift God gave to give this evangelist to the church and to spread the good news of the gospel. How many people came to Christ through the ministry of Philip? And what slowed him down? Look at verse 40 again, until he came to Caesarea. Well, you follow that cross-reference and you'll find him later, about 20 years later, in the city of Caesarea still. What? Why is he there? Well, he's got four daughters at that point. Might have been some girl who caught his eye there in Caesarea, but did he continue to preach the gospel? Those four girls, someone said he's a worthy father of four girls who are prophetesses in the church. His life extended on through his children. The gospel continued to go forward, the work of God, even in his family's life. And what a wonderful thing, because when the Lord took Philip eventually, those daughters, wherever they served the Lord, just kept on serving the Lord, the gospel continued to spread. It's a real challenge to us. I hope it's a challenge to you about the story of your life. We get a snapshot and a portion of Philip's life here. But what you can say, if nothing else, is gospel influence to a great extent. Could that be said of your life? Of my life? Could that be written as a part of your epitaph? That you brought others to Christ or you sowed the seed of the gospel through your life so others would come to have everlasting life? Is that what you're living for? You're living for something. May the Lord help us to live in light of God's purposes for us, because we can look at some lives, and when we see a life, sometimes all we see written over that life is S-E-L-F. That's all it's about. Or maybe it's W O. R K. That's all it's about. May what is written over our lives be C H R I S T and G O S P E L. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for the ministry that we're able to observe here through Philip, through the apostles, 
we pray that as it challenges us, that it would not only challenge, but change us. And we pray that we'd reflect even today about what our life has been and is about. We thank you for your word, which says, as Paul testified, for to me to live is Christ. And we pray that that would be our purpose in life and our pursuit in life. We do pray, Lord, if there's someone here today who has not yet trusted in Christ, who has not believed and received everlasting life, that even today they would come to Christ, that they would turn from their sins and put their trust in Christ alone, even as this Ethiopian did. So he bowed the knee and then outwardly confessed Christ in baptism. We thank you, Lord, for the conversion and your care for just one. And we ask, Lord, for your grace that we might give attention to those around us who may just be one, but there's a life there that will live somewhere forever. Give us grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take our hymnals and turn to 339. Let's stand together and sing glory to his name. 339.